Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. The reason for this, the outcome of this, is that the glory of God, the Father would be glorified, the Son will be glorified through their trial. And I do know that there are many things we go through that we just can't understand, we can't put it together, we're like anyone else. We're like, Lord, how could you let this happen? And why would you let this happen? And In today's broadcast, we have a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, The Resurrection and the Life. We're in the 11th chapter of the book of John, and over the next two broadcasts, we will consider this entire chapter. The primary focus today is going to be the death of Jesus' friend Lazarus and his family's reactions to Jesus when he seemingly arrives too late to save him. So let's listen in. You may be aware there were only three times recorded in the gospel records where Jesus raises the dead. I say only because, well, it's an unusual miracle among his many miracles. The first time it was a ruler's little 12-year-old daughter. She had just died. Jesus comes to her. He speaks to her. He takes her hand and she comes back to life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that resurrection. And then the second time is the widow of Nain's son. He had died and was on the way to burial. There in the procession, Jesus comes across them and he speaks to him and raises him from the dead. This is the third and final time. And by the way, only Luke records that uh, second miracle of the, the widow of Nain's son, her only son, by the way, and the ruler's only daughter. This time there's a family crisis and the family are people close to Jesus. It's a trial for them. But he is going to use the trial not just to teach them and encourage them, but to transform them forever. And so this will be the healing of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, dear friends of Jesus. They often host him when he passes through Bethany, just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. So we pick up here, verse 1, John 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent to him saying, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he who you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Two things. First of all, they send word to him, but they make no specific plea. They are fully convinced of his love for them. Their confidence in him is so great that they figure all we need to do is let him know what's up. And he'll take care of the problem, which in fact he will do. The problem, though, will get worse before it gets better. He'll go from sick to dead. It can't get much worse than that. 
Spoiler alert, by the way, if you haven't read through and you don't know, he dies. And that's important because Jesus says in verse 4, this sickness is not unto death. He makes it sound like Lazarus isn't going to die. No, he's saying the reason for this, the outcome of this, is that the glory of God, the Father would be glorified, the Son will be glorified through their trial. And I do know that there are many things we go through that we just can't understand. We can't put it together. We're like anyone else. We're like, Lord, how could you let this happen? And why would you let this happen? And I do appreciate that we don't get that from them. Now, there's a paradox in verse 5. And it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. He loved them, but he delayed his coming to them. His plan, his timing, always perfect. But their suffering is going to increase radically as they go from worrying about him to burying him. Now, their concern and confusion is expressed. It leads to a reminder and a revelation and ultimately then an explanation. Verse 7, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? They're confused that he wants to go back up to Jerusalem knowing things didn't go well last time he was there. And so again, they're concerned for him, but he's concerned for them. And so his response makes that clear. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? Some people say, see, he didn't even know how many hours there are in a day. But listen, he's saying there's 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness. So the day's basically broken up. That's all he's saying. If anyone walks in the day, in the light, if you will, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to him, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Again, the disciples are confused. His disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. It turns out, no matter how clearly you communicate, we just don't all communicate the same. We don't all understand one another perfectly. Pam and I can have this exact same situation or thought and express it in very opposite ways. When she's feeling ill, she says, I'm trying to get sick. And then I move over on the couch and she says, what are you doing? I says, I'm trying not to get sick. <laughs> but we both mean the same thing. She means she you know, feel something coming on. I'm like, I'm going to do all I can to keep that from happening to me. And so they don't really get when, when he says, well, he's sleeping. They're thinking, well, sleep when you're sick is good. That's true, by the way, of all the things you can do, plenty of fluids and plenty of rest. Maybe binge something that's non-offensive if there's anything that you can think of. But anyway, he spoke, it says, verse 13, of his death. But they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. 
And Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I can just picture Peter and the guys thinking, well, why didn't you say that in the first place? But anyway, he's saying he's asleep because to Jesus, there's no difference. To us, it's a pretty big difference. Taking a nap or a burial, huge difference. But to Jesus, listen, it's no more difficult to wake a sleeping guy than to raise someone from the dead. He says in verse 15, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. His desire, his plan for them and for us and for all is that we would believe. And he said, I waited. It's intentional. I'm glad we weren't there because you're going to get to see something that will increase your faith in me. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, verse 16, we know him as Doubting Thomas. Turns out to be Downer Thomas too. He's called the twin. He said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Probably sounded more like, let us go die with him. Because he's the Eeyore of the gang, you see. And he's always saying something that doesn't make sense if you realize who he's saying it to. Well, Martha and Mary interact now. They affirm their faith in him. Jesus rewards it, and then he increases it radically. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you've been here, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She's absolutely confident in his love. She's absolutely confident in his ability that had he been there, she's certain he would not have allowed her brother to die. And you know what? I think she's probably right. So great is his compassion and so great his love for them and his care for them that he would have felt compelled within to, to, to heal him. He stayed away intentionally, knowing them, knowing himself, and knowing the greater glory that would come in spite of the suffering and the sorrow they'd endure. So if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I have to be honest to say, I really don't know what she means by that. But I think she means whatever you ask of the Father, he'll give you. Could it be in her mind that he might raise Lazarus from the dead? It doesn't appear so as we read the rest of the story. But what she is affirming is there's nothing that you can't do. There's nothing too hard for you. Well, in any case, Jesus' response to what she says in verse 22, Jesus says to her, and you'll see this, he says to her, she says to him, he says to her, she says to him. There's a lot of conversation in their communication. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha affirms her belief, her faith, her confidence in the written word as she declares, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Like Job, like David, like so many others, Martha and her sister Mary believed that the day will come when there will be a general resurrection of the dead. Now, Job found this in the midst of a personal crisis. He had lost everyone and everything except his wife. And she was like so just distressed and, and blown away at seeing his suffering. At one point, she says, Job, you should just curse God and die. I used to think that was bad advice. I think it was just her brokenheartedness that she's like, couldn't take it anymore. Just curse him and get it over with. But Job says something to her. Hey, you're speaking like a foolish woman. I like that. He doesn't say, you're a foolish woman. Like as close as you ever want to get, fellas, to calling your wife foolish. <laughs> and so he, he says, you're speaking like a foolish woman. Shall not we receive from God those things that are they're difficult and, 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 and hard and, and, or just the blessings. Anyway, he asked a question. I think it's Job 14, 14, somewhere right around there. If a man dies, will he live again? That's a question everyone should be asking. But most people who aren't, well, they're putting it out of their mind. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That's what we know from Scripture. So it's a serious thing to neglect the question, but Job asked, if a man dies, will he live again? And then there's a revelation from heaven in, in chapter 19 of Job, where he says, I know my Redeemer lives, and in the last day he will stand upon the earth, and my eyes will behold him and not another. Job goes from asking, will it happen, to I know it'll happen, and I know who will make it happen. I love that. That's a revelation from heaven. Just like when Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms him saying, hey, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. Well, in any case, there, there it is. She says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Her hope was in the truth of God's word in the doctrine of the resurrection. And listen, that's an important thing because there are lots of hopeless people. They don't know what's going to happen. So people can tell them anything and they're like, well, soul sleep, cessation of, of consciousness, uh, reincarnation, all the ideas of man. Or then there's what God says. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Everyone dies and everyone stands in judgment. There will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, Jesus will say elsewhere. So in any case, her hope is in the truth. Her hope is in the doctrine, in the word of God. And the hopeless have none of that. There are those with hope, but their hope's misplaced. They've believed a liar. They've believed a liar. And listen, that hope, their hopes will be dashed someday. Your hope, if it's in Jesus, it will not only be realized, it will be better than we can even imagine. Well, 
as she declares her faith and her hope in the written word, Jesus says to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Now, it sounds a little confusing because first he says, if you believe in me, you'll, if, when you die or if you die, because everybody does, you'll live. And if you live and believe in me, you'll never die. So it's like, okay, which is it? I'm going to die or I'm never going to die. He's talking in one of those about physical death. He's talking in the other about spiritual death. And that's the second one. He's saying, listen, if you live and believe in me, you're never going to be separated from me because death means separation. How do we know? James tells us, he gives us a biblical definition of death. He does it in the context of wanting to tell us that faith without works is dead. But he says, as the body without the spirit is dead, and that's a biblical definition of death. The body separated from the spirit. The wages of sin is death. So separation is what he's talking about. And we see it. We're separated from God because of our sin. So he bridges that gap because only he can. He goes to the cross to die for our sin, buried and risen again. The picture is simply this, that if we're not in Christ Jesus, we're dead in trespasses and sin. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God, everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying, listen, believe in me and you'll never die. They know you die physically, but he's talking about something greater. He's given us, what does he call it? Eternal life, everlasting life. It's the opposite of separation from him. It is connectedness to him and a relationship with him that begins the moment you give your life to him and then it continues forever and ever and ever and ever to infinity and beyond. Well, anyway, she said, and we read, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's to come into the world. Jesus, her living hope, not just hope in what the Bible teaches, not just though we have that and we want that and need that, but we have a living hope in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That means every trial we endure, every storm we survive increases our faith in his faithfulness to keep, protect, and then use all those things for our good and for the good of those around us. When she said these things, verse 28, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. The Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Important, those words, comforting her. 
Scripture says we can comfort one another. And the greatest comfort we can give, we will have received in our time of suffering and trial. In fact, that's what Paul writes when, when he says, I want you to comfort one another with the comfort you've received from our Lord. And, and, and so that's happening for them and to them. Well, Mary came where Jesus was, verse 32, and saw him. She fell down at his feet. This will always be her posture before the Lord. She is one who sits at his feet, listens to him, loves on him, wants to be close to him. She fell at his feet saying to him, listen, it's going to sound familiar. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. It's word for word what her sister had said, but they didn't have to rehearse it to get it right. They both believed the same thing and both of them had faith and hope in him. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. The words for weeping here are grieving and literally wailing. It was cultural, but it's still common today. There are those who weep audibly. You can hear them. You're just, you grieve for them because you can hear and see and feel their suffering. But Jesus' response to all that, though he feels their pain, is a little bit different. It says he groaned in the spirit. He groaned in the spirit. It was in between. I may have skipped it. He sees them weeping and her weeping. That word groan means to be stirred within. There's a storm brewing within, anger and indignation within. He's afflicted and he's grieved, but it's all happening within him. Why? Because he's looking at the results of what sin does to people he loves. And it's so important to say it. It's not Lazarus' sin or Martha's sin or Mary's sin that caused this suffering. It's just the fact that sin's in the world. No one escapes suffering. No one escapes sorrow. No one escapes loss. Because we live in a sinful world. And there are still a few people, less and less though, saying, no, people are basically good. And I'm like, where? You know, show me where that's true. No, the reality, that's sweet. Somebody said Calvary Chapel. Um, that's true. Listen, you can be good in him and you might have been nice before him. But we're still imperfect sinners. We have sinned. We are sinning. Not this moment, hopefully. And, and we'll sin. But the point is, if we're different, he's made the difference. And if we've just worked our program or turned over a new leaf or tried harder, eventually that will fail us and we'll fail in it. Why? Because we need life in order to live, not just a transformation of how we were and what we do. We need the life that he imparts to us. Sometimes it can be difficult to find comfort in the idea that God will be glorified through our trials. Like the blind man whose eyesight was restored by Jesus, and in our text today, the death of Lazarus, both of these calamities, we were told, were present for the purpose of God's glory. 
During times of trouble, I have heard the verse Romans 8:28 quoted many times, where it says, and we know that all good things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And I think that sometimes we can be in error with this verse though, by automatically thinking that we personally are the ones whom this verse is referring to. Well, many times it's true, misfortune and tragedy can lead us to a place of blessing beyond our wildest imagination, I think of the book of Ruth. However, we are not the only ones who are called according to his purposes. We're part of the body of Christ, and each and every member of the body of Christ are those who are called according to his purposes. So when tragedy strikes and we still choose to glorify God, others will be blessed by seeing our reactions. And sometimes when someone sees that, it can change their lives. And again, God is glorified. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.